Well, thank you so much, Steve, for joining me today. I, I'm very excited to, you know, walk through Aptera, its it sort of mission and vision and, and sort of what the journey's been like so far to basically, you know, kind of be in an inventive space, you know, being one of the first of, of a few now, but probably many to come in, in solar EV vehicles. And, and we'll get into, into what that exactly means here in a second. But, but talk about a little bit about your journey, a little bit about Aptera's journey. You and your co-founder kind of had the, the first idea and iteration, and then, you know, kind of a decade later, almost here we are. I guess the, the way I even determined I had the time to do this and the ability was related to my my job at the time. I, I was a late bloomer, so I didn't go to university until I was almost 30 years old. I went on the GI Bill and was very you know mission focused to get through school. And once I got, I got hired before I graduated. I mean, I, I still graduated, but I had a job offer that I accepted uh, my senior year. And um, is at a biotech company here in San Diego called Illumina. And hmm. uh, so my, my girlfriend and I at the time, she's also a double E in electrical engineering. That's how we met. We decided, and she's from San Diego. So we're like, oh, it makes sense. You know, let's, let's, let's head to San Diego after graduation. This job was, it was like a dream job. You know, I was one of, I think, one or two electrical engineers in the whole company. And I was junior. I had worked as a technician for a long time, for maybe 10 years or so. So I knew how to repair equipment. I didn't know how to design. I was an engineer. So I knew my way around a lab and how to fix things. You know, what's like PhD scientists would be like looking at an instrument, you know, questioning the results or what's happening. I would walk around and see maybe it's just turned off, you know, or mm -hmm, like check right, the fuse, yeah. you know, something like that. So this job was a dream job and it, it kept me just fully engaged every bit of my brain fully engaged in solving problems on how to how to make DNA, how to uh, that's what these machines did uh, that we designed, uh, we were designing how to image the DNA, how to just all the lab automation and stuff. Just it was fantastic. And then we got to a point where we engineered ourselves out of a job, so to speak. The last machine that we built was so it was like thousands of times more efficient than the previous one. So it it cost us virtually nothing to make DNA which is a necessary part for when you're not doing genotyping, when you're doing uh, SNP analysis or single nucleotide polymorphism, it's when they're looking for a targeted area of your, of your, geno of your genome. You need to produce the opposite DNA of what you think you're looking for or the conjugate pair. So that's why we had to produce DNA for these, this whole process to work. We were able to then produce it thousands of times cheaper than anybody else in the market. So we just, we crushed everybody in the marketplace. And and the machine went on to run another 10 or 12 years after I left the company. The thing is, once that happened, then we just got kind of the engineering team broken up and parceled out to the company. And I got bored. And, you know, if there's one thing, you know, from watching these like science horror films is you don't want the lab monkeys to get out of the cage, you know, if they're bored, right? Uh, yeah. And and that was, I was like the bored lab monkey. And so I started this other project, which was building, you know, an electric, an electric vehicle. And I knew that I wanted to make it, I knew that it had to be efficient. I knew there had to be all these things because electric vehicles just really weren't possible at the time. I mean, people had converted them, you know, they had lead acid cars and there's quite this hobbyist movement. Right. Converting. What year was this around? It's 2005. Okay. As in four, 2005. So I started, you know, building this thing in my garage, and I didn't have children at the time. So I would get up, I'd make, you know, pots of coffee throughout the day, and I would just sit on the living room floor with my drawings all laid out and computer, and um, just totally ignore, you know, my wife and everybody. Unfortunately, you know, thank God she's still here. <laughs> but um, it was just, I really tweaked out, you know, 
on this project. And at some point around 2005, mid 2005, I became so obsessed. I was like, I have to, like, I have to make this a business somehow. Like surely other people want a vehicle, an efficient electric vehicle that goes really far, um, et cetera. So I have to figure out how to make this a business. And because I want to do this full time. So I wrote a business plan and um, we did a, a press release. This is right around the time I met Chris and uh, someone, a, the right person saw it and we got it funded. And that's how we started the first time. So it was really being bored, but also being an engineer that being an electrical engineer, you know, so much of what you learn is you have to teach yourself or you go to the professor just for questions, but you read the material yourself, you teach yourself. And they're very abstract things or things you can't see you know, waveforms and uh, propagation of a wave from an antenna and stuff. So you have to be able to think abstractly and also connect the dots of things you don't fully understand. And that just gave me a toolbox that I was able to leverage on the job to help make these robots and make DNA. And then I thought I could learn everything I need to know about building an efficient electric vehicle just by reading books, you know, because that's how I learned how to make DNA. It's how I got my engineering degree. And that was kind of the naive outlook that I had. It's like, I can, you know, we can teach ourselves enough to be dangerous. And that's, that's how we proceeded. And that was, you know, pretty early on, like you said, in the, in the EV movement, I, I guess we'll call it. And it might've been a little too early. Maybe the market wasn't ready quite, quite yet. So talk us, I guess, walk us through that. I guess the first, iter- the, the first go around, right. And, and then you, you guys kind of, kind of took a pause and then really as the market more matured, you kind of bought it back with full force. And then I want to get into exactly what Aptera is and how it works. Yeah, we, we uh, you know, Chris and I, we raised about 40 million bucks um, at the time. And we brought in these outside investors and, and a professional management team, uh, kind of Detroit experienced people. And around 2008, 2009, we just, uh, we all he and I didn't see eye to eye with the management team. And so we left. Uh, he started a battery company, Flux Power, took it public a couple of years later. And I got into vertical farming and, and started a company to uh, productionize you know, very high volume produced indoor grown vegetables, pesticide free, herbicide free, you know, all year round. And that took me to the Middle East where I, I helped uh, manage an ag tech fund for one of the family offices there in Abu Dhabi. And um uh, Chris and I reconnected when my family moved back to the United States in 2017. And we thought, you know, like you said early on, uh, the ecosystem of suppliers was, just wasn't there. Like there, there wasn't even a connector to charge your vehicle, like a common connector yet. And so that's one of the reasons why Tesla had to become so vertically integrated is because they that ecosystem didn't exist. They had to create it. Well, now the ecosystem exists and the market has validated the need for electric vehicles because you know Tesla's grown into one of the most valuable companies in the world. And we see people moving more and more towards electric. So that's how we knew in, in 2019 that it you know the market was ready, the customers would be there, and our analysis show of the market showed us that range was the most important factor. In the cons- not the only, but the one of the most important factors in the consumer's choice of electric vehicle, which in part explained you know Tesla's profound growth because they had the longest range of electric vehicles. There's other factors, you know, price, performance, etc. But once we determined that range was that big factor, and um, with our analysis, we said, how do we, you know, our our platform lets us dominate the range equation hands down. So this is this is the time to do it. And when we talk about solar EVs versus EV, you know, Tesla, now every car company is, is going toward e- EV production 
full slate, right, for, for every car company in the world in a decade or two. But what makes a solar car different than a traditional, let's say, you know, Tesla or just general EV? The idea, when we restarted the company, we noted that some of the fundamental technologies have radically improved, right? The batteries, the, the energy density of batteries, and also the efficiency of solar cells. And we thought, okay, that's great. You know, what happens if, if, we, if we can cover the roof with these newer solar cells that are like 23% efficient? Oh, you know, we get so many hundred watts. And now we use about 100 watt hours per mile. That's our energy consumption. So that's a fraction of like a Tesla Model 3 or a Nissan Leaf or Chevy Bolt or something. So we both, Chris and I both were like just doing the math in our heads. And we kind of said to each other, at this, looked at each other at the same time and said, why don't we cover the whole thing in solar cells? Because like that would, that would be up to 30 or 40 miles per day that we could harvest. Like just from having the, you know, the cells uh, covering the body. And there's, uh, there's something fortuitous that happened uh, in doing that. So we had these cells and we were trying to figure out how to bend them in two axes we, we realized two things. If we rotate it, you know, 45 degrees, then you, you can bend it sort of, uh, bend the diamond portion as opposed to like bending a diamond as opposed to bending a square. I don't know if that makes sense, but if you just rotate it slightly, because right. this is counterintuitive because most people, you look at university solar projects or things like that, they pack all the rectangular cells together. And we had also wanted to avoid that aesthetic. I wanted to like subconsciously trigger something in people's minds that was elevated from that. And so the, the idea of rotating it 45 degrees also looks like a diamond, you know, so it, it, it just connotes something different than having, if it were just rectangular cells. It's hard to maybe uh, imagine in your head, but if you look at the vehicle now, just imagine instead of them looking like diamonds, if you were to rotate it and they look like squares, it would just be kind of awkward looking. Once we realized that we could pack that many on the vehicle and have it become an integral design element. Then we said, you know, 30, 40 miles a day is really meaningful. That's more than most people drive. And it would yeah. almost be a, yeah. a crime not to put them on the vehicle if we if that was within reach of this ultra efficient platform. And that's when we just committed to say, look, you know, there are going to be other EVs out there. There's going to be companies that make hybrids or performance EVs. We fundamentally are always going to develop the lowest energy use platform so that we can have meaningful, remarkable solar EVs. Because we think that's the way to spread EVs is to not be constrained by the plug, not be constrained by the grid, and to be able to offset that energy production. Maybe it's 11,000 miles a year, maybe it's only five or 6,000 in some areas, but to take a meaningful chunk out of energy production and distribution to put electric vehicles on the road, that's the power of, of solar EVs. And we want to own that space. We want to own the IP to create the cells, to sandwich them, to make them last for 15 years in a vehicle, the power electronics necessary to boost wow. it to 400 volts, all that stuff. So that's how it became a solar electric vehicle company. And not being constrained to the plug is is sort of huge. And that's a big differentiator at the moment. When we yeah, look I, at the battery and and, and and like you said before, you know, maybe a lot of the components in the supply chain weren't quite there you know, a decade or so ago. Now when we look at batteries, is is it the same battery in a solar EV as it would be in a sort of a tra tra traditional EV? The only difference is maybe the size, but the, the energy is stored similar as it would if you're getting energy from a plug versus the sun. Is sort of the same thing happening there? 
That, that's right. The, the way to think about it, think about the solar, like when we think about a hybrid, uh, like a Prius or something, there's a gasoline engine and a fuel tank, and that you know provides some boost charge to to the to the battery but this is primarily i guess a gas car with electric boost so that's probably not a good example uh, but think think about it like think about it like an electric vehicle with a small trickle charger with like an infinitely long extension cord that's kind of the way <laughs> yeah, to, to think about it you yeah. know it, it's just always putting this trickle charge of up to four kilowatt hours per day into the vehicle whether you're driving or parked or whatever as long as the vehicle will accept the charge it could be fully charged in which case we'll do creative things you know we'll like turn on the air conditioning or, you know we'll, we'll we'll try and use that energy that's being produced for good as opposed to just not convert it it goes the battery functions in the exact same way the only real difference between <clears throat> aptera and other evs is that to go the same distance our our, bath, our batteries are a fraction of the size and and that's that's why gotcha. we're able to produce vehicles that gotcha. cost less because we need such fewer fewer cells fewer cells than uh, the competition i want to talk about the design for a little bit because when you see it you know it's it, you're taken aback <laughs> because it looks so it's so different uh when i was reading i, I guess it was it's sort of in this shape is I don't know shape, but like in, in sort of a a parallel to a dolphin sort of body shape mm. in some way. But I guess talk about the design process and and what goes into something like that because it takes into account, like you said, lighter battery. You know, might mean you know longer distance, right? Because the battery's lighter, but also using different right. materials, um, doors, all these things. Going back, you know, when we started. Uh, there's a there's a common exercise in mathematics or in, in engineering, like when you're exploring a new concept or you're trying to you know find out what are the main drivers of, of an equation or something. You'll set different variables to zero or set them to infinity and kind of see where the equation blows up. And so you know you might discover why well, these variables here don't really change the outcome that much, but this one you know really changes the outcome. And when I discovered that most vehicles, most cars use half of the energy just to push the air out of the way at highway speeds because of the drag coefficient or the drag product rather, that's a drag coefficient multiplied by the frontal area of the vehicle. I sort of asked myself this, this uh, th- I did this thought exercise. Okay, well, I can't change the frontal area because we want two people sitting side by side. We're not going to seat tandem because nobody will ever buy a vehicle like that because that's too, it's too extreme. It's like I would choose it because I'm, you know, a nerdy kind of guy, but most people want to sit <laughs> side by side, right, with whoever they're sure. riding with. So I can't change a frontal area, but what if I made the drag coefficient go to zero? Like, sh- surely there must be a shape that's, you know, mathematically describable, continually differentiable, that the drag goes to zero. And that's what set us off studying, you know, all the different efficient sort of university Hypermile cars, this, the solar racing cars, um, the Shell Eco Marathon Challenge cars. You know, they had teardrop, they had camber bodies, they had they have all kinds of different design, and and we sort of stumbled into some forms that were good for packaging a large frontal area. Um, and that cambered body has a unique property, like you said, a dolphin, like a dolphin or shark or other fish that swim near the bottom of the ocean. When they swim near the bottom of the ocean, they they kind of make their bottom flat and their top rounded, almost like a wing a little bit, uh, so that near the ocean floor, they have very low drag. And that's called ground effect. And once I realized that, um, you know, Aptera, like any road vehicle, it's in ground effect, the aerodynamics for the free stream, like how you would how you make a low drag airplane or any low drag shape that went through the air, those 
aerodynamics in the free stream are radically different than what's needed in ground effect. And that's what sent us down this path of discovery to the cambered shape and is what, you know, contributes to its very low drag. So so it looks like that because math tells us, you know, the least drag way to make that shape. And it's been further optimized, you know, by by AI and sort of the iterative AI process to help us nip and tuck here and there to lower the drag even more. But that's that's really the genesis of the shape. Where, when we talk about where Aptera is now, it seems like we're pretty close to seeing these vehicles on the road where people can you know, purchase them from the website. There's some pre-orders now. I think you can still invest in sort of a crowdfunding before the launch, so to speak. Like, I guess, where are we at in the journey of Aptera and when can we expect you know, to see them on the road? I'd say we're, we're pencils down with, you know, 95% or higher all the vehicle engineering. There's a lot of validation engineering to occur now um, and software and things like that. Some of it's, you know, a lot of it's still to be written and then validated. But in terms of the hard sciences, you know, the physical things, most of that is is locked down and finished. And so we've just started cutting tools for those things uh, in Italy with um, our partner CPC. Those the steel tools that are used to forge the carbon body, those are those are steel, you know, I don't know how many tons, tens of tons each they are or more, but those are blocks that we had to buy six months ago in the production queue, you know, so they would be ready once we had design locked down. And um, so we're starting to cut tooling, some tooling now. We're not able to go as fast as we want because we are still in our Series B fundraising. That's that's the one you don't see. That's not the crowdfunding. That's the one. That's us going out to the capital markets, you know, dealing with institutional investors. And gotcha. Those gotcha. are those are what require Chris and I to travel. You know, he's in Europe right now. I, we just both just got back from Switzerland. I have to go to Dubai this week. I just found out this morning. Uh, and so we are. I would say four or five big deals in between the Middle East, India, and Europe that we're working that should bring in the production money into the company. Uh, but while we're, you know, the, 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 100, the $150, $200 million, not only to fully fund the factory, but to increase production to, to shifts and do all kinds of other things that we want to do with service. So that plan is in the process of being funded. And we are still using our crowdfunding to do whatever tooling progress uh, we can to inch closer and closer to production. Production. So we're not just uh, keeping the lights on, so to speak. Everybody here has their hands and doing something every day that moves us closer and closer to production. Uh, but they really become unlocked once once we close the Series B fundraising round, which I'm very hopeful we have some very positive uh, momentum with that. It's just stuff I can't talk about publicly. Sure, sure, sure. When you think of the ideal market this is for, would you say it's sort of that day-to-day travel, you know, of, well, so so now, you know, a lot of people, many people work from home, right? So now people are driving even less, we would say, comparative to, you know, just a few years ago. So this type of product is really meant for this era of, you know, maybe you're not driving 20 miles to and from a job anymore. You know, maybe your, your daily commute is just you know, perhaps go pick up lunch or you go to the grocery store or you go, you know, pick up somebody from school, right, to, to come back and then you can have your meetings the rest of the day at home. Is that sort of the perfect fit is is for that 20, under 25 mile a day sort of driver? It's a, a difficult question. And I, I say it like this, it, you know, the, 
and I'll talk about our consumer break, our, our customer breakdown in just a minute, because the two different kinds of people who our research has shown that's buying the Aptera. It's kind of counterintuitive. Chris and I, and I mentioned, we just got back from, from Switzerland uh, for an investor conference there. We didn't have to take a car the whole time we were there. Uh, well, actually, we did. Uh, our friend picked us up from the train station, St. Moritz, you know, took us to the Hotel Amac. But while we were in Zurich and going up the mountain St. Moritz, you know, we're able to walk or take the streetcar wherever you wanted to go. It, it, one's coming by every three minutes. You know, you buy a day ticket and you just go wherever you want. Yep. It's so easy. We, just, to we don't have that infrastructure in right. America, though. You exactly, know? <laughs> exactly. But what the point I was getting at is that all transportation needs are local. You know, it just depends on your situation. Right, great point. Yeah. And so if I lived in Zurich, I don't even, I don't even know that I'd have a car. But here, like in Southern California, the distances are still pretty wide. Even if you're, let's say if you're a work at home person, um, if you have two children, you know, uh, in California, we pay the most for education per child in any other state or country in the world, I think. But we really don't have functional PE programs. We don't have functional music or dance programs. Parents have to pay for all those themselves on top of whatever they pay in property taxes. So you end up having to shuttle your kids around all these different places, just part of the normal course of events. So there's a lot of people, you know, in that situation where, yeah, they, they work from home. They don't want to drive anywhere, but they're taking one kid to dance and another kid to coding camp, you know, and another one to soccer practice. And, and their Saturdays and Sundays are just spent shuttling kids around. So I would say in the U.S. and especially in the West Coast, people do drive a lot. It's, you know, distances are just further uh, than they are in, let's say, in the East Coast. As such, I think most people... If they lease a car for you know twelve thousand miles a year, I think most people struggle to stay under that. They end up going over it or buying you know some mileage ahead of time to go over it. So I mm-hmm. think I think twelve thousand miles a year is pretty conservative. I think most people are going to want to drive more than that. As such, I I think this will just be a primary vehicle for people. You know because if you're just doing it for normal stuff here in Southern California, you're already driving twelve thousand miles a year. Like I live, I mean I'm super lucky. I live maybe six seven miles away from the office here. And it's just really close. And sometimes I can, you know, my, my daughter can even take me and drop me off. Now that she's driving, she'll take my car sometimes. And even with those close distances, you know, I'm, I'll for sure do more than 12,000 miles a year. Um, you know, and you go to somewhere like Texas, that's even worse. I mean, you're driving sure. 30 minutes to school. Yeah. So I would say anywhere where people want to drive an electric vehicle, and they want the freedom of just having to worry about where they're going to charge it, how they're going to charge it, all that kind of stuff. You know, maybe they only have a small garage, only they can charge one at a time. Anywhere you have that situation, somebody wants to save money on their fuel, on their gas, we're going to be about a quarter of operating costs of something like a, a Toyota Camry. And, you know, any of those small cars, like I drive a Chevy Bolt, you take a Bolt or even a, a Model 3, you put two large suitcases in it, you just transformed it into a two-person vehicle because you can't use the back seats. Right. You know, right. you can't even fit two suitcases in the back that size. So most people will find they'll be able to like go somewhere with their significant other, someone else, put skis, luggage, stuff in it, and and then just not have to worry about the range, not have to worry about stopping to charge, fighting the line at the supercharger, whatever. They can just go about their business and just not have to worry about it because they've got so much range on tap. So do you think then the U.S. will be the primary market? I just... I could second that. I just moved back from living in Amsterdam for two years. Oh, cool! And you know, cities are just built different. You know, right. in Europe, they you know they have some cities that don't even allow cars in their downtown area. 
Right. You know, which is like, can't even imagine, right? Trying to get that passed at local legislation for even a small city in America, right? It's just just not even on the radar, but it works so well there. I didn't drive a car in two years. I still don't have a car that I moved back. Uh, But you kind of, when you get back, you kind of notice like you really kind of, you don't almost have no choice. You kind of have to get a car. Yep. It's just like you said, the distances are just are just different to to go to places. So, do you think U.S. will be the primary market just because here cities are built much different than, let's say, Europe or you know other parts of the world? I mean, there's certainly most of the pre-orders are here. You know, in the United States, overwhelming majority are here. They're, you know, the rest are let's say scattered through Australia, Germany, Switzerland, Spain, England, and then just onesies and twosies after that. I agree with you. Like in Am. And Amsterdam, and Amsterdam and and places like Munich or Zurich, the best car is no car. It's because it, because the public transport network is so mature. But come back here, we just the distances are too too far to provide that kind of network. So I think I think the best place for this vehicle is North America. You know, Canada, United States. You've got lots of wide open spaces, good roads. Um, especially the Western United States, you've got lots of sun exposure. That's going to get you probably mostly free driving. Um, and, and anywhere where you're driving, you know, hour, hour plus at a time, and you don't want to have to worry about charging or fueling up or the cost, I think that's where you're going to see this really become popular. A couple more questions here or wrap up is, you know, speaking of, you know, Switzerland or even in, you know, the UK or, or Amsterdam, it, you know, sun isn't abundant as it is in, in San Diego or the West Coast or your Southern, you know, hemisphere or Southern part of the world. So I guess how would, let's say a user in, in Switzerland, you know, get the car charged or even, you know, we go two weeks without sun in Amsterdam, you know? Yeah. So like how, how, I mean, it works like a regular electric vehicle, so you can still plug it in if you oh, want. Oh, so you can still charge it. Yeah. Okay. So it does have a plug in. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in fact, so it's a next level hybrid. <laughs> yeah, ne- next level. Thank you. In fact, the uh, in the U.S., like the standard 120 volt wall plug will get you more than 100 miles overnight. Like the same plug wow. you plug in your cell phone, you don't even wow. need a special charger. So the advantage of the smaller pack is it just charges a lot faster. Um, so um, yeah, it's so you're I would right. just charge. You see, you just charge the battery and then put the battery back into the Aptera. So you just charge it like a normal electric vehicle. Gotcha. In fact, okay. and that, that's just the way to think about it. Think of it as like a normal electric vehicle that sometimes will magically charge itself. But if it doesn't, <laughs> or if you drive more than that, then you plug it in like a normal electric vehicle. So yeah, most people, you know, they, so to answer your question, so let's say you top it off full charge somewhere in, in Holland and, you know, you're right. It's like very overcast and it will produce some power on those days, just not as much. It may mean that you only have to plug it in like once every couple of weeks or something like that. Right. You know, right. which is still like a nice convenience. Um, oh, amazing. Yeah, with, with my bolts between myself and now my, my daughter starting to drive it to go to dance class and stuff. You know, we're always figuring out, okay, well, we, where are we going to plug it? You know, we've got one spot at home. Mom has to plug in her car. We got to plug in this one. So it's kind of a little hassle. You know, I don't want to install another charger. Actually, it's actually um, in California, it's quite expensive now. It's getting more expensive to charge your vehicle from home because, you know, you're not just paying for the kilowatt hours. You're also paying for the demand. So the higher rate right. you charge, right. you're paying on top. So you get bumped into like another tier of pricing. So 
I'm even thinking about, you know, do I disconnect my solar from the grid already and then just power something that just charges the vehicles because it just does not pencil out right now in California to uh, sell that electricity back from your roof, you know, to the utility and then buy it back to charge a vehicle and then pay a really high demand charge. Just it's, it's they're getting all the upside, you know, we're not getting any of it. So the Aptera kind of takes that. It just makes that conversation irrelevant. Last question here is, is you know, when you look in three to five d- years down the, the road here, w- what does success look like for you and the team? What are some of the goals that you hope to hit in that time frame? I think success is uh, this, this facility here in Carlsbad running two shifts, producing 10,000 vehicles a year. The company's uh, well profitable, and Chris and I are able to take more of an advisory role, uh, knowing that we've recruited just really world-class people here, high-quality people who are going to be able to take this company ahead, move it forward, advance product, advance a vision without the founders, you know, needing to be there at every turn, but uh, kind of despite the founders, you know, they, the, the DNA is now in the company and it's in the product. And, uh, and to see that manifest, uh, to see us not, you know, to need to be as involved so that the team and they're already doing that, you know, to some degree, but that, that'll be like the real sign of success for us. It's like, okay, we did our job. We hired really, really good people and uh, we, you know, made the expectations known and, and trained them. And now here they are and, and um, they're, you know, they're just able to do everything. Amazing, Steve. Well, well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're super busy and it's been great to to learn about this stuff. And I know listeners are going to get a lot out of this as, as well as I did. So I, I appreciate you taking the time and best of luck to you and the team for the next decade. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much for the opportunity. 